Hello and welcome to the Cannabis Corner. I am your host, Joshua Braff, and I'm here with my partner, farmer Adam Teitelbaum. Today we are going to talk about pets and cannabis. So many questions coming in about this. Farmer Adam had said to me, let's do a pet show. I can't believe how many people I know are asking questions and seeing lots of benefit. And I said, well, let's first cover the human thing and then we'll backtrack. It turns out to be a very important lesson here for everybody in that mammals are affected similarly. I have a a note here. Cannabidiol, CBD, one of the active constituents of the cannabis plant, has profound healing and balancing effects on all mammals. Pet owners have used it for a broad spectrum of medical and behavioral issues, cancer pain, arthritis, muscle spasms, seizures, neurological and digestive disorders, anxieties, obsessions, past traumas, withdrawal, mood, and memory. During recovery from illness or surgery, CBD can stimulate the appetite and speed healing. At the end of life, it can ease the pain and fear your pet may be experiencing. CBD does all this by stimulating the endocannabinoid system. Dr. Angie, so glad to have you here. Dr. Angie Krauss from Boulder, is that right? Yes, thanks for having me. Sure, so glad to have you here. Tell us a little bit about your world and how you came to see that something like a CBD could be very, very effective for your patients. I'm a holistic veterinarian in Boulder, and I have a house call practice. And when marijuana was legalized here, it became more of a discussion um, in my everyday appointment. People started to talk about it more, and I think people felt a little bit more safe um, asking me questions about how they could apply what they were using to their pets. And a few years ago, I really didn't know much about cannabis and its application for dogs and cats. And so I had to learn quickly because my clients were demanding the information and I wanted to help them use it safely in the best interest of their cats and dogs. And so I started to do some research and um, I found some safe products and we started using them and we've had really really great results. And every day I feel like I get either a report back from someone who's ordered a product or my own patient that has responded well. And so it's been really exciting. That's so interesting that there's been such an amazing turnaround for certain pets that you see in their energy and mood and appetite. Are those some of the major things you're seeing differences in? The main things that I feel like we can say that the majority good results is anxiety. That would be number one. I feel like most dogs and cats that have anxiety, CBD is helpful to some extent, and seizures and arthritis. You know, we're getting some other reports about immune function, maybe like chronic viral infections improving, but definitely the arthritis, anxiety, and seizures would be the top three. Dr. Angie, what form are you generally giving this to pets in, in like a tincture or an oil? We have two different forms that we use, um, and we started using both of these just to see if we could notice that one was more effective than the other. So we have an extract, an oil, and then we have a seed and stem product in a capsule that we use. So we've been using both of them just to see which one works better. And then also it's nice to have both forms so that, you know, like cats generally aren't going to take a capsule quite as well. And then the larger dogs, sometimes it's harder for clients to afford an extract month after month because it's so expensive to get that really high CBD, low THC extract. It can be really cost prohibitive for a 100-pound dog. I haven't heard of the stem and seed capsule. Could you share a little more about that? Yeah, so that the brand that we use is called Canna Companion. 
and it was formulated by a veterinarian. And uh, we've had really great results with that. I know for the human world, maybe that is kind of like the lesser part of the plant, and it seems to be really effective and almost just as effective as our extract. So is it in its raw state, or is it ground up, or how is it? It's ground up, yes. It's really, in a way, I mean, it's just part of the plant is what it is, and ground up in there. So in there, they're probably also getting some THCA, um, which is, you know, inactive, not psychoactive. I mean, it provides other benefits. And I've heard from different people, some people who said they think that THCA is better for pets, better than CBD. Um, Can you speak to that at all? Yes. Well, I think THCA would be better than uh, high levels of THC. Dogs have more THC or really I think they're CBD1 receptors compared with humans. So a small amount of THC gets dogs almost just dysphoric. So you kind of pass the euphoria stage into dysphoria and then you really get some toxicity of the central nervous system. So something like THCA, where you're not going to have those side effects or that toxicity, I think could be really helpful. But we haven't really looked at that as far as CBD to THC ratios, as far as what would be the best if we could just use a THCA instead of just a THC, if that makes sense. Hmm. There's still research to be done. Yeah, I'm really curious as to what people are experiencing with that. I, on the other hand, have also experienced with one of our past dogs, um, a pit bull who got into some of our cannabis-laden brownies a couple of times, and it was not pleasant at all for her. As a matter of fact, we had to take her into the hospital one time because she was so dehydrated and had to get an IV and just took a while for her to feel better. It's so strange how it seems like their nervous system gets completely whacked and they lose control of their legs and and the way they move. It's very strange. But on the other hand, I've also had that dog and other dogs of ours. My current dog, Lily, loves to eat fresh leaves and stems and raw raw product like that. And my others did too. And didn't seem to, I mean, there was no negative side effect. There's certainly nothing psychoactive there. What, what are your thoughts about pets just eating raw cannabis like that? I think that's completely fine. Because the THC isn't active, um, it hasn't been decarboxylated, I think that um, they're not going to have the same side effects in their central nervous system. So the toxicity isn't there. And I've had a couple clients even find as many leaves as they could and then juice them for their dogs. And so right now I have, you know, for for cases like that where you think, well, I'll just feed my, my pet the, the leaves, I just have some anecdotal case reports of my clients trying things out and reporting back to me. But I don't think that there could be any harm. My dogs, just like my children, have grown up in a cannabis household. I've always grown at home. So because of being around it and that material is there, they would just tend to go around and scoop it up and eat it up. And I had read about farm animals and chickens and dogs and cats doing that over the decades. And so I thought, well, it seems like, you know, they enjoy it. And they don't, again, they're not getting high. And it's just some... I don't, I, you know, I, I just figured there was some benefit. Yes, the big problem we have in the veterinary industry right now is that veterinarians 
see cases like you were describing with your own dog where dogs get into edibles and have a really, really high THC component. So veterinarians see this as cannabis. And so they have really sick patients that need hospitalization and treatment. And for the most part, if dogs don't eat edibles, they can, in fact, tolerate some THC. But because it's federally illegal and we all hold DEA licenses and then we all have in our minds, you know, the case that came in on emergency, I think it just gets really stigmatized and, and veterinarians don't want to really even talk about just hemp products. Well, this is paralleling the human story very, very well, is that we talk less is more all the time and dosing. And here you have many, many homes in the new reel in America with edibles lying around. Uh, children come to mind. Dogs come to mind. And it's not good for either of them. So the balance of how this is distributed is a very big deal as it comes rushing at us so quickly. I think that the pet story needs to be taken as seriously, which means there is benefit here. And isn't that interesting that the dog brain and the human brain are, are both experiencing this harmony? And then in the physical aspect of us as mammals, the entourage effect and how that might be affecting a living thing. It's a good story to hear that a dog can overdo it, just like a human can, and it makes also sense that the stigma is reaffirmed when a dog comes in so sick and there's question marks, what did he eat? And perhaps the person doesn't want to tell you what he ate. So there's some ironing out that needs to be done here, but Dr. Angie's letting us know that there's lots of folks in Boulder, and I remember this is in Colorado where... People have extra <laughs> cannabis leaves lying around for their dogs. I don't have like a whole lot of extra leaves to uh, sprinkle on my dog's uh, <laughs> dinner. You know, though, on the Maybe more in time. legitimate side, we did use CBD for both of our last two dogs, Cassie and Sadie, um, towards the end of their life. They both had lymphoma, unfortunately, and we used CBD drops to uh, help ease their pain and such, and it really did seem to calm them and mellow them and put them a little more at ease at the uh, end of their life. So I also saw, saw that use, and it was very helpful. Dr. Angie, do you think there are many other veterinarians that are practicing like this? You know, I think there are more and more. And whenever I get calls from other states and people say, you know, I, I went to my veterinarian and I asked about cannabis and they said, you know, they couldn't even talk about it. I try to reach out to as many veterinarians as possible and just, you know, tell them what I'm doing and what I'm seeing. And so I think as time goes on and as information circulates, through the veterinary community. And as we get more educated, I do think more and more veterinarians will use it. I'm always surprised at how many veterinarians actually still don't know the difference between a hemp product and marijuana. And so even just the nomenclature of it all comes from cannabis, but it's different types of plants, but with the same name, just even that type of discussion, we really need to educate the veterinary community to help them empower pet owners and, and for people to not feel so ashamed to, to bring that up in the exam room. And so I, I think it is up and coming. We have two veterinarians that are making their own cannabis products that have great reputations, and there is even some research going on at CSU right now using cannabis, and so I feel like it will catch on, and it will catch on because it's necessary. 
and, 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 uh, and CSU, for our listeners who are not from Colorado, is Colorado State University, which is located here in Fort Collins, where I'm at. And I remember they asked, our dogs were seen there by them. They're incredible. It's a, it's a great place. And they asked us if we wanted to partake in the study, but we were just too upset to do anything really at that point. So we did not partake in the study, but I know they are doing really great things there. So pets... Uh, like cats and dogs, like humans then have, uh, I guess, an ECS, an endocannabinoid system that interacts with this. And I'm assuming that just like doctors do not learn about that in medical school, I'm assuming veterinarians don't learn about that in veterinary school. That's correct. Yes, we, we do not learn about that. Maybe in toxicology, we might learn that THC is toxic and we might go over the receptors and some of the really limited information. Probably oh. 15 years ago when I was taking toxicology, I'm not even sure that we discussed it past the fact that it had effect on the central nervous system and we weren't quite sure how. Well, I mean, just like doctors and lawyers have to undergo continuing education throughout their careers, I'm assuming vets have to do that same thing. So are you seeing any offerings regarding CBD, THC, any of that um, as far as in, in your veterinary training world? In the integrative side, you usually have these continuing education seminars that are, you know, mostly traditional, maybe with a few alternative courses. But definitely with the holistic slant and the holistic uh, conferences, I am seeing that it's being discussed and I have the opportunity to go to lectures. And so the buzz is there and we'll just probably have to wait maybe a year or two for it to kind of hop over to the more traditional uh, conferences. But because everybody's talking about it, the demand is there, and veterinarians, at the end of the day, they just want to educate their clients, and they want to do the best. And so even if they don't agree um, with cannabis recreationally or medicinally for people, they still want to get the information. I like the notion of people hearing about the pet world and then applying it to the human world in the idea that no one would want to get a pet high. They would only want the pet to be relaxed or have less pain or you know, be in a rhythm that is not stressed. That's a, the same thing with the human thing. I think that the first fight, the first sentence that comes to someone who's a naysayer is, how are you going to function high? How are you going to do this high? And here we are taking time to say the CBD aspect of the plant is a different planet in that it's from within, and it's not about putting yourself in a drunken state or in a state that would have you making different kinds of decisions. So there's a vast amount of truth and language that can be used in the different elements of how we explain to a mass population that this is about only helping people and, and animals, and it happens very, very quickly if you can allow yourself to research it and see what might be best for you. And we'll have more with Dr. Angie Krauss in a future episode of The Cannabis Corner. Mm -hmm. 
Canakids, where there is breath, there is hope. Inspired by young cancer warriors, our lab-tested honey gold cannabis oil was formulated specifically for serious disease in the young and old alike. Our Canakids oil production process is led by PhD scientists and organic chemists who specialize in medicinal cannabinoid formulation. Canakids offers a variety of medicinal cannabis products, which include flavored THC tinctures, flavored CBD tinctures, honey gold CBD oil, honey gold THC oil, and THCA tinctures. Our flavored tinctures contain raw cannabinoids collected through a supercritical CO2 extraction process, then infused with organic MCT oil and finally blended with a sugarless 100% vegan terpene-infused flavoring that is available in both grape and bubblegum. The tinctures allow for easy and consistent dosing and are available in several different potencies. Canakids. Welcome back to the Cannabis Corner. Today we have Danielle Schumacher, who is the assistant of Dr. Lacido, who was a wonderful guest of ours in shows three and four, I believe, where we were just getting going and we had a physician out of Berkeley who spoke so eloquently and has had a entire career of seeing cannabis as medicine make a big difference for a whole slew of different types of ailments. Really glad to have Danielle here. She is the person who put me in touch with many of the people that we have in interviewed, and it's been invaluable to have a connection with her. Danielle, I'm going to start by asking you, since you sit at the desk when people come into Dr. Lacido's office, uh, we're talking about hundreds of patients, and there's children, and there's elderly, and um, you really get quite a look at the population that is in need of meeting with him and doing research and looking for mentors in how to approach cannabis as medicine. Tell us a little bit from your point of view of what it is you see most coming through the door. Is it a sense that there are people with so many sleep issues? Is it a sense that it's about severe illnesses mostly or migraines? So since cannabis as medicine is touching on all these points of semi-severe, very severe, and all the way to I wish I was sleeping better, give us a sense of what you've absorbed um, from working there so long. Yeah, there's a wide range. Um, there's a little bit of everything, but uh, most of his patients have some sort of chronic pain. So something like migraines would be included in the really big category of pain. Mm -hmm. We've started to see more cancer patients. More doctors are willing to discuss that option for terminal illnesses. So we've seen more cancer. Because he's one of the only that sees kids, we do see a lot of seizures, autism, and anxiety, all ages. So teenagers with anxiety, depression, all ages of people with different levels of anxiety. Uh, sometimes the anxiety is secondary to some other diagnosis, and um, they might come in just for the anxiety and then find out that it could help their other diagnosis, for instance, high blood pressure or diabetes. Some people use it definitely for sleep. Um, there are a lot of people who need assistance sleeping and want to reduce pharmaceuticals. They might be taking pharmaceuticals for five different reasons, and they've heard that cannabis could help them reduce their pharmaceutical use. So a whole range of what people are using pharmaceuticals 
pills for and they want to reduce that. For instance, menopause, there's so many different treatments, pharmaceutical treatments for menopause. It's really catching on that people should at least consider combining cannabis with what other treatments they're using. That's yeah. that's the big ones. I haven't heard menopause and that certainly makes sense from, you know, the descriptions of what some of those side effects are. When you see a kid who's coming in and he's just got anxiety, it's not about pain. Is there a sense that his parents are Berkeleyites or San Francisco people who have a sense that skipping or backburnering a chemical like Prozac might be the best thought? I remember certain herbs before any legality that were used like St. John's wort for anxiety. Do you, is it is it like that? Some of them, mm-hmm. yeah. Sometimes it's the parents initiating it, and sometimes it's the teenager. Who says, I, n- I have a lot of information because yeah, I, I'm, I, at, I'm online, <laughs> mom, right? and, mom and dad. Even though mom and dad find themselves in this very progressive part of the country, that does not mean they're on board. We've learned that. Right. And they might be on board for adults, but not their own teenager. Their teenager's brain um, is still growing. When you're yeah. 28, 28 is the big cutoff. Oh, okay. Yeah, what did you some, hear? Yeah. Some teenagers say, you know, I tried it and it helps. So yeah. they've already tried it. So the parents bring them in to say that, you know, if you are going to be using it, I want you to take it seriously and, and talk to a doctor about it. Mm-hmm. Other kids haven't tried it, but like you said, they, they're hearing all kinds of stuff online or from their friends. And so they have very specific preferences of what they want to try that will differ from what the doctor recommends. So Mm. sometimes the doctor is trying to convince them that smoking isn't the best way for them to start. And so there's some mediation going on there between the parents and the kids. In the new reel, that conversation between that teenager and the parents is an interesting one in that the parents need to listen in a way that they didn't to Adam and I, which was, we're feeling better. In the 80s, it wasn't an option. That wasn't a very attractive thing to hear, we're feeling better, I think, because of fear of what the psychoactive properties would do to us as we drove, as we were had the famously 16-year-old brain, which is a terrible decision-making brain. <laughs> but here in the new reel, Mom, it's hard to beat my sentence, I am feeling better. So all the way from a scenario like that to children that you're seeing that are getting relief from cancer, I say getting relief from cancer, is that an overstatement? Getting a relief from the symptoms and from the mental weight of it. Right. Mm -hmm. So one of the most common things I tell potential new patients on the phone, especially cancer patients who are very hesitant, I tell them, you know, what we know for sure is that cannabis helps with some of the most important basic life functions. So eating, sleeping, and mood. So that applies to all of our patients. If you think about autism, if you can find something natural that will help your child with eating, sleeping, and mood, that will also help the parents. So with cancer, for sure, it helps with the side effects of the cancer treatments, and it helps with the anxiety and depression that come with having cancer, which also leads to insomnia and other problems. So then as far as does it actually help the cancer itself, uh, we're very careful with how we discuss that with patients. And I usually refer that conversation to the doctor, of course. Our office uh, is very conservative in that way that uh, we don't want to give patients false hope, but we do want to give them encouragement in different ways. So it depends on the patient and, and their other doctors. Sometimes some of the most important things we help 
patients with is just navigating the medical system in general. So um, there's a lot of stigma still attached to um, using cannabis when you're talking to an oncologist or some other specialist. Even if society at large has accepted it, when you're in the doctor's office, there's still stigma and fears associated with insurance coverage and things like that. A question about, uh, I guess, a little more specific to cancer, Danielle, which is have you seen in your office cases where people have been using cannabis in terms of maybe treating their cancer, which of course you're getting these benefits that you just discussed, but in terms of shrinking tumors, because I know of four specific people who have been on cannabis regimens and have had tumors shrinking, and they're not using, they've excluded other pharmaceuticals, and they're on a specific cannabis regimen, and each time they're going into their oncologist, that tumor is smaller and smaller and smaller. Have you seen things like that? I haven't seen that specifically in our patients. We don't track it that specifically. And a lot of them come to us um, in later stages. They've been using cannabis. I'm not sure where they get the advice. Uh, A lot of times the internet. So by the time they come to us, they've realized that, you know, even though they've been using cannabis, their cancer is progressing. So they research or hear from a doctor or a friend that if you want to get real advice about cannabis from a doctor, this is the place to go to see Dr. Lucido in Berkeley. So we haven't really tracked that, although what I can say is our patients live a lot longer than expected. So even if they're not telling the oncologist that they're using it, the oncologist is suspicious that there must be something they're doing that's different from all of the other patients, and they are outliving their expectancy. Longer, would you include a better, worse, or static quality of life? Oh, definitely better quality of life. I mean, and that could contribute to why the tumor shrink is just they're doing better in general. And I know there's a lot of research showing the kind of thing you're talking about with tumors. We just don't track it in that way, and we don't have a high volume of patients because it's just one doctor and one nurse practitioner there, and we spend so much time with our patients that we don't have a large quantity to research. But over the years, he's seen a large quantity of patients, um, you know, over 20 years of this. So there is some interesting data we could collect about our patients. But I think that some of the real important data that's coming out is through the studies, for instance, at UCSF with Donald Abrams, Dr. Abrams. There's some specific study going on there with this particular doctor who is in the midst of researching and not with humans. Right. I've heard even he is skeptical about saying that cannabis shrinks tumors. He's very conservative because he's been an oncologist for so long. And again, he doesn't want to give people false hope or say something that could be exaggerated on the internet or by the media. So um, when you're talking about cancer, it's really tricky as far as the kinds of things that you, as a patient, you'd want to see and know that, oh yeah, it will shrink my tumor. Or if I take this dose of cannabis every day, it'll go from stage four down to stage two. I mean, we just don't know that. There's not enough research. Right. So you were saying that people are coming in having been smoking and they are not necessarily physically getting better from the cancer. And then Adam says there's people in Colorado who are focusing on a cancer regimen with only cannabis 
and they are getting some. That sounds like a human study, like a non-regulated human study, where a lot of the stories that we're hearing about the benefits from serious tumors and and cancer are beginning to sound like there's something there. We we understand that a patient who has an illness is going to do better as a patient if they are finding pockets of happiness, of hope. Of euphoria, even or not. So the question remains in 2017, with everyone saying the revenue from cannabis would be in over 20 billion dollars in 2020. We're still seeing reluctance for someone to call a Dr. Lacido and say, "Hey, we'd be fascinated with your 20 years of data," but there is no call like that happening. And you've got oncologists in the Progressive Bay Area of San Francisco, quite wary of saying yes, I'm on board with this. Probably concerned about their own licenses. You think that's true, Daniel? Yeah, they're very afraid of saying that it's a cure.、Uh, right. A lot of patients do call the office,、um, hoping that we'll confirm what they're seeing online that it cures cancer. And what I tell them is, I believe a lot of those stories online that those patients. Did go into remission, but there's too many factors. Every patient is different. Every strain of cannabis is different. Smoking is so different than ingesting. There's just so many factors that go into deciding what regimen is appropriate, and we can't predict how the same regimen will work on one person's cancer versus someone else's. And something like sleep, going back to sleep, you know, that's one way that cannabis helps with cancer treatment is. To be able to get sufficient rest, so that varies so much by patient too. So we're hesitant to say that it's a cure, and we don't need studies to tell us that cannabis is helpful, right? <laughs> right.、Um, But in this context, I'm saying there's not enough studies because there really are not enough studies focused on cancer using cannabis, and part of that comes back to the supply, the consistent supply of cannabis for all patients. And then if you think about for studies, I mean, even at UCSF, the cannabis that they use in the studies is so different than what you can go a block away from UCSF and buy at a dispensary. Right. I remember I discussed that on a. Prior episode, which is one of the reasons why I doubt the efficacy of so many studies,、yeah. is because of the quality of cannabis. I mean, is it full of stems and seeds? How was it grown? Was it harvested at the right time? What strains are they using? I, I mean, there's so many questions, and until this federal ban is lifted and this scheduling is changed, I don't know how we're going to really learn that unless some. Private foundation, you know, takes it upon themselves, and it would probably be have to have to be outside of the United States. Yeah, the quality of the cannabis used in the studies is a major, major problem. So, if you think about it, if this really low quality. Inconsistent cannabis is used in these studies, and they're finding such positive results. That tells you something. That what if they were able to use medical grade oil and have a consistent supply and really know what went into that? Then we'd have much better study results. Right, and and the thing is, is it's too bad because of this scheduling and it being federally illegal that that is what prevents there being a bridge between the companies that are producing these things and these labs, the labs that are running the tests. I mean, it's so insane. 
Yeah, it's really backwards. We like this topic where, yes, they're using the lowest level weed, it's the, the dredges. I don't know what how that particular protocol came to be that I guess they were growing their own. And then there's benefits from that. We'll have more with our interview with Danielle Schumacher in a future episode of The Cannabis Corner. Farmer Adam and I are so grateful for your questions, and we'd like to remind you that we are on Instagram at The Cannabis Corner Show, where we are putting up very, very important articles on a variety of issues regarding cannabis as medicine. We'll see you next time on The Cannabis Corner. Mm-hmm. 